All right, when you think about a religious zealot, what comes to your mind? Martin Luther, okay, well, that's a positive image, right? Martin, at least I think he's a positive image. Maybe not everybody agrees, but I think most of the time, the image we have, right, is kind of negative. Religious zealot. We think of the crazy-eyed, wild-haired person. I think this is particularly the case since 9-11. Uh, not to start us too heavy, but on 9-11-2001, we saw as a nation, we'll never forget what religious zeal could drive a person too, right? It drove this group of men and all those who helped them hijack planes and run them into buildings and try to destroy civilization. Uh, and so it's no, no surprise why when we hear ever since 2001 as Americans, religious zealot, probably our first thought is negative or at least slightly so. Well, tonight I want to try to resurrect that idea and make it give you a biblical understanding of what zeal is, properly understood. Uh, zeal, according to the Bible, is not merely for the crazy. Although we're all a little bit crazy, just because that's who we are. Religious zeal is not defined in the Bible as craziness. Religious zeal is actually something that is a powerful motivator that God uses to direct his people in the direction he wants them to go. And we all need it. In fact, let me read a few statements from the Bible about zeal. Uh, the disciples, when they saw Jesus clearing the temple of the money changers and of those who were trampling the courts of God, remember what the disciples thought about Jesus? They quoted from Psalm 69, Zeal for your house has consumed me. That's what they saw in Jesus. They saw a man who had been consumed with zeal for God. Well, if you go back to Psalm 69, which they were quoting, you'll see that's a Psalm of David. And so David, the same one who wrote Psalm 119, wrote 69, and he said about himself way back then, zeal for God's house consumes me, which then became an even greater description of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was driven to do courageous things on behalf of God and his honor. Paul, the apostle, says in the book of Galatians, it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. That was Paul in Galatians. It is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. However, it was the same apostle Paul in Romans who laments about his Jewish kinsmen that they had a zeal for God, but it was a zeal not according to knowledge. And so you see in those, those quotes from the New Testament, the range that the word zeal can have. Zeal is not automatically bad. In fact, Jesus is described as zealous. Paul says it's always good to be zealous if you're zealous for something good. But we also see in the New Testament a teaching that says zeal can go wrong when zeal breaks away from what the Bible calls knowledge or true knowledge. And so let's look at these verses from that lens because I think what David is describing in this stanza is his zealous heart. If you'll look at your bulletin, there are three things about zeal we want to consider. First of all, what good zeal is, which David tells us in the first several verses. And then we're going to see what good zeal isn't, 
in verses 118 and 119. And then finally, we're going to end by thinking about what zeal does, what it causes us to do. All right, so first of all, let's look at what good zeal is. Uh, Verse 113 expresses it very, very well. David says it simply, I hate and I love. That's what zeal is. Zeal is a strong commitment in one direction away from another direction. It's a commitment to go in one direction away from the other. Look at verse 113. Which direction is he going away from? He's committed to going away from this as far as possible. Double-mindedness. He says, I hate the double-minded. Now, is that, would you say that's strong? It's a strong statement. I hate. Uh, hate is the absence of love. I mean, hate is a full commitment to oppose something or someone. David says, I am 100% opposed to those who are double-minded. That is, those who are split. That's what the word means, to be split or undecided. Now, he's not talking here just about people who can't decide where to go to dinner. That's not the kind of double-minded. He means people who are undecided about more important matters. For David, these are people who are undecided about God. They don't know whether they want to be on God's side or not. Sometimes they say they do. Sometimes they say they don't. Sometimes they act like they do. Sometimes they act like they don't. They're fence sitters. Uh, Jesus described these people as being lukewarm in Revelation chapter 3. What did he say about the lukewarm? I'm going to spit them out. I will spew you or spit you out of my mouth. In other words, Jesus said, I hate the double-minded. I would that you were either hot or cold, but to be double-minded, I cannot stomach. I am, a, I am opposed 100% to an indecisiveness when it comes to God and matters of God. David had that same zeal. Now, what was he going towards? Away from double-mindedness, towards what? Your law, God's law, the word there is Torah. That's an important word in the Old Testament, Torah. It's the word for the whole law of the Old Testament. It's a word that literally means direction. God, I hate this double-mindedness that is not at all decided whether it wants to be for you or against you. But here's what I love, having a direction. And I want to get my direction from you. Your law, your direction is my love. This double-mindedness and waffling, this split personality in matters of faith and worship, I am not for it at all. I'm opposed to it. I'm going to run in the opposite direction. And so then in verses 114 to 117, he begins to describe what his lifestyle of pursuing God is like. And what he describes is basically a life that is building itself around God's, a relationship with God. I think that's probably the best way to say it. It's building itself around a relationship with God. Look for yourself there at verses 114 to 117. What are some of the things that David says about God or about his life in relationship to God?
God's his protector, right? He says, I, you, you are my hiding place. I can hide in you. You are my shield. I can go behind you when all the enemies are coming my way or all the temptations are coming my way. What else? God is holding him up. And he, in fact, he's asking God in verses 116 and 117, uphold me, God, according to your promise that I may live. God's the source of his life. He can't live without God holding him up. And then in verse 117, hold me up that I may be safe. God is the source of his safety. And if God lets him go, if God doesn't hold him up, he knows he's completely exposed. David, because he is avoiding and, and running as far as he can run away from a indecisiveness about God and running as far as much as he can in the direction of God's commandments, he is able to have the confidence to build his life around his relationship to God. What God is for him is the thing that most defines David. If someone were to interview David, David, what's the most important thing about you? David might say, the words of Psalm 119, verses 114 to 117. What's the most important thing about me? I am David. God is my hiding place. God is my shield. For ev evildoers, I don't have any time for them in terms of their influence on me. Now, David's not being a, a religious snob here. David was all for teaching sinners God's way, just as Jesus was, friend of sinners. Amen? But when it comes to those sinners having influence on him, David says, depart from me. Just like Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. By the way, uh, when Jesus hung out with sinners, who left different? Was it Jesus? No, it was the, it was the sinners who left different, one way or the other. Uh, Jesus didn't leave different. That kind of shows, exposes maybe a little bit of our, well... We're not as good at G as Jesus is at ministry towards sinners like ourselves. We get all enmeshed and right, caught up with them. We almost run away with the flood of sinners because we are sinners ourselves. Jesus was separate from sinners in his heart. And so when he had dinner with sinners, they left changed. David says, if you are wanting to come and influence me or to control me, oh evildoer, get away. Because I've got my heart set on something. Who am I? God upholds me. That's what gives me life. God holds me up. That's what makes me safe. Everything about me that you need to know is summed up in my relationship with God. And the reason I know that is I am not, I am determined not to be split. Real zeal is not being split. It's being pure and single-minded. Single-minded. Jesus once made this statement. If the eye is single, the whole body is full of light. Have you ever, remember that? That's from the Bible. If your eye is single, the whole body is full of light. If you are committed by faith then it will light up your life. The influence of God will light up your life. If you're split, what does James say about the split? You, ain't, you have no reason to think you're going to get anything from God. Because again, God spews out the lukewarm. He loves the zealot. He loves the zealot. And so we, we got to avoid this idea. I think it's very popular in the modern world, and it's especially popular since 
9-11 perhaps, that religious zeal is automatically bad. That it automatically drives people to do crazy, cruel, bad things. Now, can it? Yes, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But it does not automatically do so. In fact, at least for David and for Jesus and for Paul, it actually gave them a healthy way of living. Because they were zealous, it gave them a positive way of living, and actually a way that was loving. Uh, they all poured themselves out in service for others. I mean, think of David and all he did for the nation. Think of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. Think of Paul and how he describes his life as being poured out like a drink offering so that Gentiles might come to faith in Jesus. That was what zeal led them to, not to driving planes into buildings. Zeal is determined not by the zeal itself, but by what one is zealous for. Right? And I would call the bluff of our modern society. And I would call it this way. Everybody's zealous for something anyway. Here's how you know what you're zealous for. What are you willing to fight for? Everybody's got something. If you don't know what it is, your spouse probably knows. What buttons they can push to make you want to fight. Everybody has something they're willing to stand up for even when everybody stands against them. J. Gresham Machen said in the early 1900s, he was a great hero, um, I think, of the Presbyterian Church in the early part of the 1900s when many of the denominations of America were giving over to liberal theology. And he stood up and he said this in one of his books. He says, the... Uh, the really important things in life are the things about which men are prepared to fight. He said this is especially true in religion. The things that people are agreed on, the things that everybody agrees about, are really usually the things that are least worth holding. It's the things about which men and women are willing to fight that are the most important things. When it comes to things that relate to the Lord God and things that relate to eternity... Those ought to be the things that zealously affect us. Right? You're already going to be zealously affected by something anyway. It may just be, instead of God, it may be your own reputation. Well, what a cheap trade that is. I mean, you could be zealous for the Lord God or you could be zealous for your name. That's a pitiful exchange. Uh, some people are zealous for their bank account and for their assets well again what a cheap trade if you're trading that for zeal for the Lord right it is always good Paul says to be zealously affected in a good thing what is the best of all good things God I remember when I was a kid even kids know this when I was a kid, there were certain things that would lead us to fight other kids. Right? There were buttons that could be pushed. For me, it was always, uh, it was either a your mama joke that had gone too far. I had to defend my mama's honor. Or it was my brother was being, my brother was already in a fight. 
And so I had to join to try to help him. In other words, which I got suspended off the bus. He's not even here tonight to hear this, but I got suspended off the bus for fighting on Robert's behalf. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. I've been waiting for years for credit for that. But what does that show? I mean, every kid is zealous. Uh, I was zealous at that time, rightfully so, about my family. I didn't want to, I could fight my brother all day long. I didn't care about that. But if you fight him, uh uh-uh, right? You better not talk about my mama, right? That's the way I thought as a kid. Well, as we grow, the things we're zealous for ought to also mature along with us. And the most mature person in the world is the person that is zealous not so much for themselves and their own honor and their own stuff, but is zealous for God. The times when the church has been most strong and and strongest and most pure are the times when people woke up and started caring more about what God thought than what people thought. I'll never forget, I I read a history of the Reformation once and, and the writer who was a scholar said, the Reformation was defined by a time when many men and women in Europe became intoxicated with God. That's what we need, right? We need to become intoxicated with God. Uh, You know, who cares what I think? Who cares what you think? Who cares what the crowd thinks? What does the Lord God think? Real zeal for David was that. Zeal for your house has consumed me. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. I'm committed. I'm not budging on this because God is worth defending. Now, I'm I'm quite aware God can defend himself, but God calls us to stand for truth and righteousness and grace and love and all. It's not just the harsh things. It's also the things like compassion and those things that the Lord stands for. We ought to be zealous to protect those things. Let me ask you, what are you willing to fight for? What are you willing to fight for? That's what David is putting before us in those first verses. Now, secondly, what zeal isn't? And we need to be careful here because zeal is a very dangerous thing, too. And i got to say this. Zeal is a good thing, but zeal is dangerous. Why might I say that? Alex? That's right. You could be following all kinds could be political it could be whatever it could be philosophical it's easy isn't it when you start feeling righteous in a cause to get swept way away from where you originally intended to stand it's very easy for us Uh, Jesus could do this without ever slipping but you aren't Jesus and I'm not Jesus and so it's much easier for us in our zeal to get Sidelined, and, and, and so enter once again the men who took those planes and flew into the buildings. They, I mean, we, none of us can doubt that they had zeal. Tremendous zeal. Uh, and yet, I think all of us certainly would agree their zeal was very mistaken to say the least. In fact, had reached levels of cruelty that are hard to imagine. Because they got swept up with something that was not 
given the approval of God. All right, I just told you that what, is, what zeal is, is being single-minded, focused on God's way. Here's where zeal goes wrong. When instead of being single-minded and focused on God's way, I become more single-minded and focused on what I think is God's way rather than what actually is God's way. Do y'all see this? It's a subtle difference, but it's an extremely important difference. Um, have you ever been wrong, but you thought you were right? And you were like dead certain, and you were fighting people and debating them. And then what was that moment like when somebody exposed that you were wrong? They Googled it. Don't you hate that? When you think you're right and you're arguing and then somebody Googles it. And you, you're just like so shamefaced because you had been wrong and you thought you were so right. Have you ever been there? Feels embarrassing, doesn't it? Well, don't you know that we are very, very prone to that kind of thing when it comes to God? Very prone. Uh, it is hard sometimes because of our, well, our, our cunning hearts, which we don't even sometimes know they're being cunning when they're being cunning. It's hard to tell the difference between what God said is true and what we think is true. Some folks are zealous in the wrong way because they've confused their thoughts for God's thoughts. Now, someone might ask, well, how do I know the difference? David's answer is simple. And I want to share it with you. Look, look at verse uh, 118 and 119. This is where he gives his answer. God, he's talking to God, you spurn all those who what? Go astray from your statutes. What is a statute? God's explicit direction. What God has actually said. It says God spurns those who go astray from that. Now, why does it say he spurns those kind of people? Look at it. For their cunning is vain. What's, what's David describing here? He's describing something that actually comes up a lot in the Bible. And I'll, I'll, in just a minute, I'll, I'll take you to a few places where this comes up to show it to you. What he's describing here is our tendency to leave the clear directions that God has given about himself and his word and to start in our own vanity making stuff up about the Lord, which will always lead us to very bad and sometimes even deadly types of zeal. Zeal can be dangerous when you start going off the reservation, so to speak, when you start going, striking out on your own and making it up. This is not good. Uh, religion is not creative writing. Right? It ain't designed to be that way. Uh, it, religion is a revealed thing or it's nothing at all, according to Christianity, right? We, we believe either God reveals himself or we can't know him. And we believe God has revealed himself through statute, through actual words that he has given through prophets and through his son recorded in the scripture. When someone goes off of that and starts to think their own ideas, their own creative writing about God is God, that leads to tremendously damaging zeal. Whole religions are built on this, 
such as the one that inspired those men to fly the planes into the building. It started with the creative writing of a single individual in the Middle East in the year 600. Right? The Bible warns us about this. I told you there were several places that talk about it. Uh, We start first with Mark chapter 7. Where Jesus says about uh, people in his own day. That this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, their belief in God or their worship of God was vain. It was empty and nothing. Why? Because it came from men's own head. It was creative writing. Rather than submissive submissive humility before God's statutes. He goes on to say... You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You treat things that came from men as being sacred just because they were traditional when they aren't what God said about himself. Therefore, your zeal became very misguided. Paul talks about this in several other places. Um, We can go to Colossians chapter 2 and see a very pointed example of this. And I'm flipping there. You might want to as well, but... I'll read it to you anyway, whether you do or don't. But uh, Colossians 2, 20 to 23, it says this. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Read man-made regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion or will worship and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value, no value, none, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I'll give you one more. 1 Timothy chapter 4, also from Paul. And this is not my whole list, but I'm just giving you a taste. This happened, This occurs many times in the Bible. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul uh, tells... <clears throat> sorry, I went to 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, In the latter days some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. So this is not just humans involved here, Satan's involved here. Uh, And so, you know, our our view of other religions is that there's some truth in them, usually, because they're based on some part of God's revelation in all of the religions, but that they are so mixed with man's own ideas and even sometimes with the suggestions of Satan that they become false, you know, in comparison to Christianity. And so it says here, they, they devote themselves to deceitful spirits and to the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. I mean, this is strong stuff. Uh, these people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it, if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Paul, of course, talking about many people who were teaching that if you want to be a strong Christian, you can't get married, you can't have sexual relations, you can't eat Whatever, you fill in the blank of what that thing is you can't eat. And Paul says, you're just making that stuff up. Your zeal in it is zeal, but it's not good zeal. It's not according to the statute. 
David says statute is the way that God reveals himself. Which means that in anything in life, we should never believe or do anything that is contrary to the Bible, ever. In any area. But in areas of faith and worship, we should not do anything that God does not positively teach in Scripture. In other words, we, shouldn't, we should not only not take away or contradict, we shouldn't even add. That's the teaching here. Which I think is an extraordinarily important teaching that doesn't get talked about very much in the church. Uh, instead, we have a very loosey-goosey view of how God reveals himself. And we think that our own intuitions and gut feelings and all these things can be intertwined in with Scripture. No, those things have to be submitted to Scripture, especially in matters of faith and worship. Nothing should be admitted except what God has put in by commandment. Now, in other areas of life, I said you can't go against God or go contrary, and that's because of this. If you want to know how to build a table, of course, you don't go to the Bible to find those instructions or how to drive a stick shift. You don't go to the Bible to, to show you that. Or, or in medicine and psychology and other areas, people learn things through experience and trial and error and all those things. We, we believe as Christians you're also learning from God, but it's through more of a natural revelation way. But we believe that in things that you're supposed to believe about God or ways that you're supposed to worship, he does not, you're not supposed to rely on that stuff. He's got statute for that. Which is why when you're building a table, you learn to do that from your dad or from your granddad, and that's a fine way to learn it. Now, in building a table, you shouldn't do anything contrary to God's commandments, if it's even possible. But I can imagine there might be a case where you might be tempted to do so. Don't do so. But when it comes to what you believe about the Lord and what you believe God is commanding you to do in worship and in obedience to him, don't let anybody bind your conscience beyond what scripture says. Or else human zeal runs rampant. And you end up with people flying planes into buildings. And, eat, and we don't just want to pick on Muslims. Christians have done terrible things out of misguided zeal as well. And we should say that. Because we're not immune to these problems just because we name the name of Christ. What makes you immune to those problems is you hold to the statute. You see? Uh, I just think this is some clear, straightforward teaching that we kind of need today. Because I think um, maybe we've lost our precision on these matters in a way that I think is detrimental uh, to our overall spiritual life. Uh, but back to Psalm 119. You can see there in verses 118 and 119. I've got one more thing to say about that. Uh, David is sure that God will one day discard all the dross. Okay? One day all the... What is dross? Start there. What's not the metal? Uh, so you have a hunk of gold out of the ground and anything in it that's not pure gold is dross. And you apply fire and heat to that to purify it and the dross melts away and the, the gold remains. Most other metals work in a similar way. Uh, David is picturing the final judgment as if it were a great burning where all the dross of human deception and of Satan's deception will be burned away and melt away. And what will be left 
is the pure belief and worship of God that he has wanted for us from the beginning. And for that reason, Paul says in verse 119, I love your testimonies. I know that anything that's not your testimony is going to be burnt up anyway. And so I love your testimonies here and now to prepare for that day when the great burning, the great dross-clearing day occurs. And so in matters of religion, in matters of faith, in matters of worship, all those types of issues that are directly related to our relationship with God, we ought to limit ourselves to what God has said. Where God shuts his mouth, we should shut our mouths. And I endeavor to do that as a pastor. And I don't always do that perfectly, I'm sure, but that's what I I'm try to do. I try not to say more or less than what God says in the scripture. Because I don't think I have any authority of my own. I don't stand here as a man of my own authority, but as a minister that is a servant of Jesus, bearing his sword from his word. And uh, I, I would encourage every one of you to do the same in your own personal life. Now, you need the help of others. I need the help of others to understand the Bible, to apply it. I'm not saying this is in radical individualism where just you and your Bible are going to figure everything out because that doesn't work very well either. It's, and besides, it's foolish to discard uh, the, the many gifts that God has given to his whole body by just trying to go it on your own. But what I'm saying is when you're deciding between your voice, human voice, human ideas, no matter how long, you know, high, highly held, when you're deciding between that and God, go with God. It's pretty simple, but it gives a clarity to what zeal is, according to the Bible. When Jesus cleared the temple, why did he clear the temple? That, that's kind of what this boils down to. Why did he do that? That's right. Because God had said by statute, my house shall be called a house of prayer. What had they turned it into? Well, he called it a den of thieves. I mean, they had turned it into a place of commercial, you know, marketing and profiting on the backs of people who were less fortunate than themselves. Jesus cleared the temple not because people had personally made fun of him or that he was just a hothead. He cleared the temple because he was zealous for what God's statute had said. And he took the authority that God had given him as the son of God and he cleared the temple. The apostles didn't clear the temple. And, and so we should beware not to read into this some idea that, you know, God is telling us all to take into our hands the temple clearing powers that he has not given to us. Um, Jesus Christ had those powers and he took them because he was zealous for what God had said by statute. Now, lastly, let's look at the last thing, which is what does good zeal do? And you say, well, you've already told us, I think. Well, let me say it the way David says it, because this gives it even more, I think, definition in verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. What does true zeal do? This is another way to tell the difference between zeal that is not according to knowledge and zeal that is good. Zeal that is not according to knowledge 
will usually carry us away in our own personal vendettas and hot-headedness. In other words, we will cease to be zealous for God and slip over into being zealous for our ego and our pride very easily if, we don't, if we're not careful to observe what 120 says. Zeal that is based on the Lord and that is taking God's statutes as its cue is zeal that is motivated first and foremost inside and out by a reverent concern that God's honor and God's will be done. When it says my flesh trembles, he's talking about his literal body. Um, the, the word is actually the word for goosebumps in Hebrew. <laughs> or when your hair stands up on the end, the bristling of the hair. It's very picturesque. Because I fear you, I get goosebumps. My hair stands on the end. God, I am deeply affected by your sovereign majesty. That's why I care. I'm, I'm intoxicated with God. I care so much about what God thinks and what God says that it motivates me to live in light of his coming judgment. What this is getting at is the deep heart motivation of true zeal. And this is the reason why God wants us to be zealous. Because a zealous person is someone whose heart belongs to God. Someone who trembles at God's word, who gets goosebumps at God's statutes, is someone whose heart is wholly devoted to pleasing the Lord above all else. Now think about that. Don't you want that to be true in your life? Don't you want that to be true? How freeing is that? That the main thing you care about is to please God. Think about the other worries and fears and all the rest that might just melt away if your heart just wanted more single-mindedly to please the Lord. What are some of the other things that we get afraid of that makes our hair stand on end? What will people think? What does the majority think? Or as Alex, what does that political party or this political party or what, you know, this figure or that figure or this celebrity or that? I mean, we get so wrapped up, don't we, in the many other voices that vie for our attention. And I think maybe now we have a problem with this more than ever. You know, it used to be, and this is before I was born, but, you know, back before all the technology, not to say technology is all bad, but... Back before that, how many voices did people hear in their whole life? Your parents a lot. Yeah, your parents a lot, yeah. I mean, not many. You heard your teachers, you heard your family, you heard the people that were right around you, but you didn't have access to all the voices, maybe in the newspaper, things like that, but not, not like we've got, where it is, and, I, and I'm especially, you know, as a dad, concerned for all our kids, just how inundated uh, we all are, but especially our younger people are, 
with voice after voice after voice after voice, and it comes to us in a medium that makes it all seem like it's legitimate. The crazy wrong voice sounds just the same as the right voice when it comes to you through the, through the, through the phone, right? There's no distinction. There's no filter. There's no fact checker. It's just all coming at you. That's dangerous. And it's not dangerous because I'm afraid that the truth won't win out in the end. I'm not afraid for the truth. I'm afraid for our cunning vanity. And I'm, I'm afraid for my own cunning vanity, uh, which is one reason I try to stay off of a lot of that stuff as much as I possibly can. I've got to be on it sometime, but I try to stay off of it because I'm afraid of my own cunning vanity. I can't handle that many voices at once. Right? I, I need, what, in my life, what I need more, what I need more of is one voice in particular. Right? There's one voice that I really need more of. I need to open myself wide open to that voice. And you all know who that voice is. The statute of the Lord. Right? And I also need other voices that help me listen to that voice. I don't need a thousand, who knows how many other voices competing for my attention and for my heart. If Paul was concerned in his day, listen, in the last days, deceitful spirits are going to come and they're going to lead many people astray and you better be on your guard. You better listen to the statute. Paul couldn't even imagine what we got unleashed. I mean, maybe the Holy Spirit showed him a preview. I don't know, but I, I, I can't imagine him imagining the type of situation we're in now. We need more than ever to commit ourselves to prayer over ourselves and over our children, and more than ever to be careful about the voices we hear. I'm not saying that you know, kids should be cut off completely. I'm saying, and that's, that's your decision as a parent, but what I'm saying is children should learn, kids should learn, we all should learn how to be good choosers of the voices we're going to listen to. Uh, or else, um, when it comes time, our hair will stand on end. We will get goosebumps, but it will be for a nefarious, lying voice uh, rather than the voice of the Lord who speaks by statute. When you think of a religious zealot, I don't want you to just think of the crazy people who are violent and unreasonable and you can't talk to them because they're just they're bloodshot eyes and they're you know talking like crazy people I want you to think about Jesus and David and the apostle Paul and John and I want you to think about something that you yourself can aspire to and want to be by God's grace a person who is single-minded focused who is who is limiting your beliefs to what God has spoken in his word and carefully attending to his commandments because you believe it came from him. And you don't want anything more than to please him. Because he loves you. He's your father. Right? He died for you. Zeal. One more thing. Was Paul zealous before he became a Christian? 
Yeah. What did he do in his zeal? Killed folks. I mean, I've always said this. People always react kind of shocked, but I think Paul could be described as a religious terrorist before he was a Christian. I don't think there's really another word to describe it. But notice, when he became a Christian, he didn't cease to be zealous. He just became zealous in another direction. Christ compelled him by love. May that be so for us. Amen.